It's time again for Talking Trade, sponsored by MMAC's World Trade Association and Michael Best Strategies. Welcome to another episode of Talking Trade. I'm Sandy Siegel, president of Any Day. And I'm Ken Waslick, managing director of EM Waslick Associates, an international business development company. We are really pleased to have a uh, China expert here, Andy Rothman from Matthews Asia. Uh, Matthews Asia is a uh, investment managing firm here based in the United States, focusing on Chinese uh, public companies and securities and portfolio management. Uh, Andy has a breadth of wide experience of the China. He studied, uh, you were a student in China as well as a, a strategist and a macroeconomic uh, economist, and now you're an investment manager uh, or investment strategist, I should say, at uh, Matthews Asia. Uh, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ken. Good to be with both of you. Welcome. I, well, it's a great time to be talking about China, or certainly very relevant time to be talking about China. Um, it seems the political relationship between Washington um, and Beijing has become increasingly tense. The continued China tariffs, even though they had expired, um, have not really expired. The uh, Uyghur Forced Labor Preventative Act is certainly, I know, impacting my industry and, and a really strong focus on the forced labor. And it's causing a lot of extra scrutiny on imports and manufacture of Chinese goods. I think I, I read recently the U.S. press is saying there's a brewing trade war with China and, and some of the recent congressional actions. So, um, you know, some in the, in the U.S. are even advocating for disengagement or decoupling from China. Uh, give us your thoughts. Uh, you, you've got a lot of experience, and, and I know you have, um, obviously, being a strategist, um, a very, uh, you know, strong insight on that. So give us your thought on that, Andy, and, and why perhaps you feel that way. Thanks, Andy. That's a great question to start off with. Yeah, so I've had the, the benefit of following China for a really long time. Uh, I first went there as a student in 1980, and then I went back as a very junior American diplomat in 1984 and spent 17 years with the State Department with the Foreign Service before I got into this business about 20 years ago. So I've been following this for a long time. And I think one of the things that a lot of people in Washington have lost sight of is that the process that we called engagement with China, that's both on the business side of doing trade and investment there, but also on the, on the human side, uh, on academic exchanges, students going back and forth, on the technology side, uh, making improvements in science and medicine. All of that engagement, I think over the last several decades has been really, really positive for most Americans. And I think it's also been really positive for most Chinese people as well. On the business side, it's really worked. If you look at the last 20 years or so of China's membership in the WTO, for sure, they don't follow all the rules, but they follow enough of the rules that U.S. exports of goods to China uh, since they joined the WTO are up over 600%, whereas to the rest of the world, they're up about 100%. Uh, our agricultural exports, important for Wisconsin, are up 1,600% to China. It's now our largest market in the world for agricultural goods to the rest of the world, up much less than that. Uh, but it's also been really good for jobs that go along with these exports. Right now, about 750,000 jobs in America, including over 13,000 jobs in Wisconsin, uh, are attributed to 
stuff that's being sent to China. And then you mentioned the Uyghur Force Protection, uh, Labor Force Protection Act. Um, we, if we want to be concerned about what's happening in China, I think engagements work there well also. Uh, the lives of the average Chinese people are so much better now in terms of their standard of living, their access to education, healthcare, than they were when I started working in China. Now, there are serious problems in places like Xinjiang with the Uyghur population, in Tibet, in Hong Kong. So what's the best way for us as Americans, our government, as individuals, as business people, as investors, to provide both carrots and sticks for the Chinese government to treat the rest of its people better the way they have for most of the population. And I think that's by continuing to engage with them. If we stop trading with them, if we stop investing there, I think we lose our voice. Thank you for that. I, I couldn't agree more as, as I too have seen many of the really in worthwhile benefits of, of promoting trade and, and our engagement with China. Yeah, most definitely, Andy. Uh, I know the University of Wisconsin had uh, you know, hundreds of Chinese students here. And of course, that's a real benefit for the student body as well as financially, because they pay the full boat as opposed to in-state uh, tuition. But switching to the import side, um, you know, there's a, uh, over the last couple of years, especially with the uh, supply chain difficulties, uh, lockdowns on the Chinese ports and the like, and the delays and various, Many U.S. manufacturers are looking towards a China Plus or a China Plus One policy, and I'm personally involved with uh, Vietnamese and uh, Malaysian companies that are looking for access to the U United States manufacturers, and their, uh, their position is, hey, we're that Plus One, we're that Plus. Do you see this continuing, accelerating, decelerating? What, uh, what are you seeing on this front? Uh, that's another good question, Ken. Thanks. Let me address that from two perspectives. First, I think during uh, the worst of COVID, China actually held up its end of global supply chains quite well. If you look at the share of total global exports that China accounts for, it went up to an all-time high during the peak of COVID uh, because they were one of the few places up until this past spring that wasn't locked down. Um, and their ports actually did quite well. The problem's got kind of overemphasized in the media. So there's that. Now, in terms of the longer term trend that you talk about, I think that is underway and that's going to continue. But I think this is a, a structural change. You remember, or at least I remember, uh, back a few decades ago when Japan was the place where a lot of low cost, low value added stuff was made. And a lot of that is Japan got wealthier and wages went up, moved to China. And now it's China's turn for that to move offshore to places like Vietnam and Bangladesh and, and Malaysia. And the Chinese government is fine with that. I mean, this is a place that raised the minimum wage for factory workers over a 10 year period by more than 10% every year. So their attitude has been, especially now that the working age population is starting to shrink, they don't need to focus on the most possible jobs. They need to focus on good quality jobs. And one of the things they've been doing is putting a lot of money into education. So the number of university graduates in China has gone up by 40% over the last 10 years. So I think for American companies that are looking for relatively low skill, low value added manufacturing and already have too much in China, it really makes sense, as you said, Ken, to focus on some other places in that part of the world. But Remember that for most of the American companies that are manufacturing in China right now, they're manufacturing in China to sell to Chinese consumers. And for these folks, 
GM, for example, sells more cars in China than it does in the United States every year. For these folks, they're not going anywhere because that's the market that they're focused on. So I think to sum it up, it really depends on what kind of business you're in. But there's a lot of opportunities in the rest of Asia right now. Okay. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Where, um, you know, given the supply chain, it, it's worldwide to a great extent. So you know, the congestion, the delays, and so forth. And um, I, you know, we we've all been impacted by COVID, and perhaps she's dealing with it slightly differently. Yeah, a lot of the delays I think came on our end. Uh, I'm looking out my home office window right now at the port of Oakland, and uh, I can see that the number of ships is waiting to unload has gone down significantly from yeah. about a year ago. Yeah, dramatic, very dramatically. Uh, yeah, without a doubt. So um, we're definitely seeing some leveling off there. But again, con you know, congestion and bottlenecks here in the U.S. And, and from the, you know, increase in supply chain around the world. But tell us, let's talk about the COVID. And we're seeing that a lot on news and um, kind of a change in, in the policies in China. And I understand China's abandoned its previous zero COVID um, tolerance and, and transitioning a little bit to living with the virus, much like um, we're, we've been trying to, to do. So I, what do you see as the implications for us, for China? Um, you know, is that, I guess, is that good news, bad news? Uh, how's that gonna help manufacturing and, and, and controlling you know, the spread of COVID? I think in the end, uh, certainly by the spring or early summer in the coming year, this is going to be good news for everybody, for Chinese people and, and for us as well, uh, because China is really the last major country that's not has not been living with COVID like like we have been. But it's going to be a bumpy process along the way. But the change is amazing over the last four weeks, and I think what this comes down to is what I believe from my 30 plus years of working on China is kind of a basic first principle of thinking about how the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party, which runs the government, operates. And, and for me, it's been all about pragmatism, that pragmatic approaches to the economy and to most social issues have made China rich over the last several decades. It was really poor when I first went there. And it's also kept the Communist Party in power. So I think while they make a lot of mistakes along the way, they always tend to go back to a pragmatic approach. And I think we're seeing that now with COVID. We're seeing that now with their approach to the real estate market, which is important for the Chinese economy. And we're also seeing a much more pragmatic approach to how Xi Jinping is dealing with Joe Biden. Uh, we saw that in Bali at the G20 last month. But back to your question about COVID, we're seeing a massive change. They have dropped all of the restrictions that were keeping Chinese people from living a normal life, that were keeping factories from operating normally, that were causing a lot of logistics problems domestically. So we're seeing the end of required testing every day. And one of the consequences of this is that COVID is just ripping through China right now. Uh, talking to my friends there in the evenings, um, you know, two months ago, none of my friends knew anybody who had COVID in China. And now everybody knows somebody or themselves has had COVID. But most of the cases are mild. Um, if you look at what the government's reporting in terms of what they call severe COVID cases, the number is less than 150 in a country that's three times bigger than ours. Um, the other important thing that's happened is when they made this transition, they also energized, re-energized the vaccination program there. So in the last seven days, uh, they've 
administered 4 million doses of their vaccines, whereas in the seven days before that, less than 1 million. Okay. So I think they're moving in the right direction. It's going to be bumpy. Chinese New Year is coming up at the end of January. There's going to be a lot of travel. There's going to be more cases. We're seeing more cases here in the winter, too. But I think once the winter flu season passes, I think then we're really going to see the Chinese economy and life in China bounce back to normal. So I think by by the summer, the economy is going to be going full steam ahead again. And this is really important for us, because let's keep in mind that on average, every year over the last decade, China has accounted for one third of global economic growth. That's a larger share of global growth than from the US, Europe, and Japan combined. So what happens in China is, is really important to all of us. We should want them to succeed for the overall global economy, but also for so many of the companies. I mentioned GM before, but if you look at the tech side, Texas Instruments, Qualcomm, Intel, they all get a significant share of their global revenue from China. And without that, where is the money going into more R&D to keep American companies at the forefront of the semiconductor business? Great. No, absolutely. And as you mentioned earlier, it's you know, everybody focuses on the imports and manufacturing in China, but a lot of U.S. companies are in China for China and benefiting from their growth and, and I, you know, I, I think the stability um, and, and certainty will certainly add to that. Yeah, so, for example, you know, Chinese people becoming wealthy uh, in just a few decades uh, has been really important to American farmers and ranchers. I yeah. mean, that's really been driving our sales of soybeans, our sales of beef, oil seeds in general. Yeah, and it, and it is a, a big win for Wisconsin exports. Terrific. Andy, I'm afraid we're out of time. I, I think we could we could um, go on quite a bit here, but we'll just have to invite you back. Um, really, really helpful um, and relevant getting your perspective on China. Thank you for joining us on Talking Trade. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Andy. Ken, appreciate it. See you next time. You've been listening to Talking Trade. Sponsored by MMAC's World Trade Association and Michael Best Strategies.